Um, listen, uh, I hope everything's going well. Really appreciate uh, the way that you came to church today. It's a beautiful day. And anytime you choose to come to church rather than the beach, good for you. Um, beach will be there later anyway, so it's great. Anyway, thanks for, thanks for being here. And um, just wanted to uh, thank you for being part of the lift. People have already started giving, and we wanted you to prayerfully do it so we don't expect, you know, us to raise a million dollars in a week, but we are, um, we are grateful for the way some of you have already given and some of you are thinking about giving. If you have any questions and you want to talk about any more, please get in contact with me because I'd love to sit down with you and kind of share the vision of everything that we're doing, what's going on, and how it all generates here from Crosswalk Redlands. And as you've seen, we're doing the work um, in between the buildings and they begin pouring concrete next week. So we're really excited about that. And hopefully by the end of July, we will have, um, we will have this all worked out. Somebody should not be calling me right now. Sorry about that. Um, anyway, thanks for being here. I hope, I hope it's been a good day so far. We're going to jump right in. We're starting with 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, and it begins in a beautiful way that every letter should begin, dear friends. He just begins with dear friends, agapeteo, um, truly beloved. He genuinely loves those to whom he is writing. And he wants them to know that there's a spirit or a pneuma behind every statement that is made about Jesus and about faith. This section that we're talking about is about intention, and it's actually kind of a difficult section. Not difficult, but we're going to have to delve into it. And we're to test the intention of people as they speak about Jesus. John Stott says this about faith. He says, neither Christian believing nor Christian loving is to be indiscriminate. In particular, Christian faith is not to be mistaken for credulity. True faith examines its object before reposing confidence in it. What, what John Stott is saying, and it parallels what John is saying, is that when someone begins to speak of Jesus or for Jesus, you need to make sure that you're checking what they're saying and you're testing them because there are a false prophets, false teachers, and false pastors, certainly, that are happening. So it begins like this. Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the spirit they have comes from God, for there are many false prophets in the world. John is interested in the source of the prophetic messages that they're hearing in their churches, and he's concerned. And by the way, when John is talking about spirits here, he's not talking about um, demons and angels. What he's talking about is the intention, the attitude, the spirit in which someone is speaking and where it comes from, right? Why would we need to test those to whom we listen? And it's actually an interesting question here, right? Do you test what I say? Here's, here's uh, can, I, can I be really honest with you? I misspoke a couple weeks ago. I was talking about Isaiah, and I said it took 700 years to write. I meant 200, had 700 in my head, said it in all three services. And a couple people, two out of the thousands that come, two were like, I don't think that's right. <laughs> and I was like, no, it's right. And then I was like, oh, no, that's not right at all. What did I say? Oh, no, I meant 200. Point is still the same. Probably three writers to the book of Isaiah took 200 years to write, right? Point is the same, but a vastly different timeline on that, right? I'm not saying you should fact check me on everything because that's going to get exhausting people, but, um, but I did misspeak. Um, so my hope is that you have tested the things that I've said um, over the years that you've been coming here, over the time that you've been coming here to understand my spirit, the spirit of which I speak about Jesus and which I speak about God. Now, one thing is really interesting where we have a tendency to get a little bit, um, a little bit iffy sometimes is particularly with new believers or 
particularly with someone who has had their faith reinvigorated and they get really serious about their faith again and all of a sudden they want to just drink it all in and listen to everything they can. And I don't know if you've heard of this thing called the internet, but you can find a lot of stuff there. Like you can just Google it and there's a ton of stuff. And we don't always know the spirit in which that stuff is being given, but a lot of it sounds pretty good. And so I've often had to, to in Bible studies, unwrap and unravel poor theology in people's lives because they were just so excited somebody said they were speaking for God and they didn't exegesis even though it was wrong, they, it sounded right. I just call this the sin of excitement, right? It's not a bad thing. You're just really so excited about your faith. You're willing to drink in what everybody says. Caution is needed here because there is a danger. And really more than caution, wisdom is needed. So where do you get wisdom? I think in three places right? In no particular order, although I might put the last one first. But the first one is this, you need to have a mentor. And you may be saying, listen, I'm 65, I'm 70, I'm 80 years old, I don't need a mentor. My answer to that is yes, you do. We all need mentors. We all need people who have walked the path that we're walking before. You may be incredibly, incredibly knowledgeable about your thing and what it is that you do. But when it comes to the realm of spirituality or really the realm of lots of different things in your life, you're not an expert on everything. And you need someone who can walk with you who's walked those roads before. And that's really important. There's also a thing called reverse mentoring, which um, those of us who are getting a little older know about this because when we ask our kids or our grandkids like, hey, how, how do I do this on my phone? that's reverse mentoring. All the kids are like, "Mm, yeah. And I feel for you kids, because sometimes you guys got to watch us, like, struggle through a phone, like, and you're like, you don't know, just give it to me. Like, thank you for being patient with us, honestly. But it's important that we have mentors. The second way that we find wisdom is that we take a look in the community, right? There's reasons why churches believe certain things. Now, obviously, different churches believe different things. But if you hear a new novel idea about who Jesus is or whatever that you've never, ever heard before, rather than just going, well, that sounds pretty good. I guess I'll follow this person. You need to say, wait a second. How come, A, this is new? Is it really new? Because there's really nothing new under the sun when it comes to theology and Christology, not brand new. And secondly, is this a road that people have gone down before and has ended in ruin? I've never heard of it, but just because I've never heard of it. And this is why the community matters, because so much is confirmed in community, right? That way you don't just... So, so fascinatingly, I, I don't know if you just watched the... Um, and I didn't say this in the other services. This just came to me. Um, I don't know if any of you watched the Netflix documentary, the latest Netflix documentary on Waco, Texas. Um, Well, what was interesting is my father-in-law had members of his church from Hawaii that were at Waco that died, right? That were taken from his church with this new theology that nobody knew. And he was begging them, hey, don't go with this guy. This doesn't sound right. He had sat down with David Koresh and had done Bible studies with him and walked away like, this guy is, you know, adamant about what he believes, but it's not... His people wouldn't listen to him, but they never came to the community to sit down and say, does this sound right to you guys? Now, communities don't always know everything, but it's a safe place to ask these questions, which is really, I think, important. And then lastly, of course, it's the Holy Spirit, right? And there's something to be said for trusting in the Holy Spirit. But to trust in the Holy Spirit, we have to be pretty clear on what the voice of the Holy Spirit sounds like in our lives. Um, and that can come in a lot of different ways. It can come in the, the, the form of your morality and your conscience. It can come in the form of the people around you when they're advocating for more wisdom or this or that, your community. The Holy Spirit speaks in lots of different ways. And sometimes it's just this feeling that something's not right. 
You need to listen to that intuition. You know, I, I, hope, I hope that, you know, every young woman in this place, and certainly older women as well, I hope that you are taught, if something doesn't feel right with a man, get away. Doesn't matter. Don't make him, who cares if he feels bad? If something doesn't feel right, you walk or you run or you scream or you do whatever, right? That's important. Well, sometimes when it comes to our theology, like we need to say, mm, that doesn't feel right. I'm going to take a step back from this rather than diving in head first. The reason why I'm leaning so hard into this idea of theology is we've said it before. Good theology makes good people, right? It makes good Christians and it makes good people. So we need good theology. And John is worried about the theology that is being taught in his churches. This is how we know if they have the spirit of God, says John. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus Christ came in a real body, that person has the spirit of God. What I mean by that is that we must believe in the incarnation, the humanity of Christ. This is a pushback on the docetists or the seemists or the people who believe that Jesus was God, but just seemed that he was a human being. And you may say like, well, what's the big deal? I want to make this abundantly clear. It is a big deal that Jesus is fully God and fully human. That is a, that is a um, really important. John believed it, and we know John believed it because he used that term Jesus Christ. Jesus being his human nature and Christ being his salvific or his divine nature, right? The man Jesus is God's Christ was the idea behind it. And the reason why I'm emphasizing it so much is that on this truth, the Christian faith stands or falls. On your confession of Christ, it determines whether or not you're a Christian and whether or not you understand the tradition or the trajectory of who Jesus is. A prophet's confession of Jesus Christ matters. Therefore, no matter how convincing or eloquent these speakers may be, they still must be judged by their own confession of Christ. That confession is crucial because what one thinks about Christ will affect every other aspect of one's theology and one's worldview. So good theology matters and good Christology, particularly what you think about Jesus. John continues. He says, but if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person is not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and is, in, is indeed already here. So he made the positive argument that if you believe that Jesus is fully God, fully man, then you're a prophet of God. And then he makes the corollary, the negative corollary, where he says, but if you don't believe, then you need to understand that you are Antichrist. Now, Antichrist is a fun thing. We as Adventists like to talk about that. And we always put the idea of the Antichrist at the end of time. Am I right? That's how we think about our eschatology. It's at the end of time. However, what does it just say here? It says, has come and is indeed, or is coming and is indeed already here. Um, this is what, how I think we think about it. We maybe need to change our thinking a little bit. We have Christ on this continuum. And then on the other end of the continuum, we have Antichrist. We've got halo and we've got horns. Right? That's what we have a tendency to think about when we talk about Antichrist. But the very definition of the word is simply against Christ or anything that diminishes what Christ has done on the cross is Antichrist. Right? So anytime we think we need to be perfect to be saved, that's Antichrist. Because this is anti what Jesus has done on the cross. Does that make sense? I know it's super obvious. Like you can almost just say Antichrist. 
And it's kind of self-explanatory as opposed to the Antichrist, which sounds like a, a, a particular entity. Anyway, he says it's already here. And the answer is, yeah, of course it's already here, right? Because we think this way sometimes, right? And it's concerning, but anything that diminishes Christ, by definition, again, is the Antichrist. And by the way, this happens on both sides of the theological spectrum. So it happens over here on the very um, conservative end, on the very conservative end, when we become Antichrist or we become, in a way, diminishing, our theology diminishes what Jesus Christ has done in the world and done on the cross. We become very perfectionistic, thinking that we need to be perfect in order to be saved. We become very behavior-oriented, and we become very rigid and not a whole lot of fun to be around. We all know those people, right? Um, it's, it's a hopeless existence because you're never good enough, right? And it's exhausting because you're just managing your sin all the time because Jesus apparently isn't able to handle it. That's Antichrist, right? However, on the very liberal side over here is a denial that Jesus is God oftentimes, or denial that Jesus even existed. There's a hopelessness to that as well. And it often or can lead to a permissiveness that is anti-Christ or anti-biblical as well. Remember, Paul says all things are permissible, permissible, but not all things are beneficial. Well, if we lean over too far on this side, we have a tendency to say, well, I'm not really sure what matters because there's, this thing doesn't really exist anyway, right? Um, I, I always say, if someone says I'm a conservative, you know what I say, I always say, what are you conserving? And if someone says I'm a progressive, my question is, what are you progressing? Right? I want to be clear on what those things are. But on either side of the theological spectrum, we can really fall off the rails if we're not careful. So yeah, is it already here? Yeah, it's already here. And by the way, sometimes it's in each one of us on either side because we're fighting ourselves too. And our, our theological understanding is not necessarily fluid, but it's flexible. And, and we learn new things and we think new things and then we kind of come back to center and we process and we learn. All, all that's important. But I think you need to stop thinking about the Antichrist as something that's about to happen at some point, anytime we diminish the work of Christ, particularly within the church, right? I'm not talking about other faith traditions and that sort of thing. I'm talking about particularly within the church. It's really a, a dangerous thing. John continues. He says, listen, but you belong to God. So he's actually going to make us feel better about himself, ourselves now. He's like, but you belong to God. My dear children, you already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. So dear little children, victory has already happened in the past. It's past tense, right? You may not be smarter than the people who are speaking, but you have access to the one who is smarter. You have access to the Holy Spirit for the spirit that is in you is greater than the spirit that's in the world, right? So when something feels off theologically, when some preacher or some pastor or some teacher says something that you go, huh, that seems weird, question it. Because that could be the Holy Spirit working in you. Now, it could be a misspoken word. It could be a misunderstanding of what the pastor said. But we need to check and we need to see. Because John is adamant. He says, listen, those people belong to the world. So they speak from the world's point of view. And the world listens to them. Like they're, they're doing a different thing than we are. Right? The difference between false prophets and true believers is kind of the origin and the intent. They speak in the present tense as opposed to the victory that you've had in the past tense. The world hears what it knows, right? But it's important that we're not fooled by the package because these guys were going into the church in the first century and they sounded really good. I mean, they were good preachers. So good, in fact, that people were believing wrong things about God because of how eloquent they were. They even called them super apostles who were... Who were, who were um, it, boasting about the things that they had done, right? But it's important that we're not fooled by the package 
Because we need to understand, just because a ministry or a pastor is influential does not mean they have good theology. I, I want you to hear me here, folks. How many documentaries have we seen over the last few years of these massive, massive churches and preachers who have these massive, massive followings who are not, not only not living the life of God, but are clearly antichrist in the things that they're doing? Success does not equate blessing, nor does it equate good theology. I hope you understand that. Now, we're a church that has a pretty fun package, right? We can acknowledge that. That's okay. Um, and, and, you know, you've heard me say this many times before, that that's just the fun stuff that we do because that's the way that we do church and we kind of love it. But, um, but don't be fooled by the package, right? Listen to the message. This is where the testing needs to happen. You don't have to like the style or you can love the style, but you got to listen to the message because what the message is saying is what we have to, to gauge whether or not this person and this intention is right, true, and of God. Another way, not just the confession of Christ, but you need to pay close attention to the fruits of that ministry or the fruits of that message. Are people becoming more Christ-like? Are they becoming more full of love, more compassionate? Are they becoming more merciful and seeking more justice in the world from listening to this pastor or preacher or teacher speak? And by the way, this doesn't happen in a microwave. If a new preacher or a new pastor shows up on the scene and you love what they say, that's great. But before you, you know, jump full in, make sure you're, listen, or you're watching the fruits of their ministry. I know some really phenomenal orators. They are really good at preaching. And people listen to them and they go and, and, and they learn under them and they go to their schools of evangelism. And, and man, people just fall in love with them. And when those people come back to their local church, they are, they, they are a son of hell. Is that Okay. They are, because the theology that they've learned is divisive, it's undermining, and it's not of God. But man, that preacher sounds really good. And then I've seen them do the most immoral things to get their way in a church. And we've probably all seen this at some point. So this is really important, I think. The fruits of their ministry, what is happening from the things that they say, is it building up the kingdom of God? Is it destroying the kingdom of God? Is it building up that person or is it building up Christ? Those are important questions that we have to ask. John, again, wants us to understand that, that, that he loves us. He says, listen, we belong to God. And those who know God listen to us. If they don't belong to God, they don't listen to us. That is how we know if someone has the spirit of truth or the spirit of deception. Now, you've got to remember, John's, the fruit of John's ministry are a ton of churches in Asia Minor. He'd been doing this, what, he's, he's, man, he must have been in his 80s or 90s at this point when he's writing. He has a long history of ministry. So when he says, we're different, listen to us, he comes from a long line of like, there's, there's proof in the pudding of what I've been preaching. So what do we learn, right? Number one, examining the confession of the pastor, preacher, or teacher is really important. But number two, their fruit or the character of their congregation. So what this means is that people will gauge me as a preacher, pastor, teacher by the love that you bring into the world, by the fruits of the ministry of sitting here and listening to me week after week, year after year. People will say, what kind of fruit is going into the world? Are they loving more? Are they loving well? Is the world changing and becoming a better place because of what happens in the ministry of Crosswalk Church? 
right? Is the kingdom of God growing? Are people being lifted up? Is grace being shown? Is mercy being shown? Are they speaking towards compassion and mercy? Is all that happening? Because that's the fruits of the ministry. And that's, that's, again, really important. I keep saying important. I got to come up with a new word. It's crucial. It's crucial. It's, yes. Um, but here's the problem with false prophets. The problem with false prophets is that they get you almost all the way there. Um, some of us were born in a time where you didn't have GPS in your car. And you had to just trust someone to give you the right directions. That's a dicey situation. Because directions are quite complicated. And my father, who I trusted very much, was really great at giving about 98% accurate directions. But the last 2% were a free-for-all. So he'd like get me close. And that was usually enough, right? You got close enough, and then you're like, oh, there's the, there it is over there. Okay, I'll drive over there and I see it. Um, but sometimes it got you in real trouble. I was driving to the Forum one time. I was going to go see the Lakers play in the 80s. This is the, the era of, you know, Magic Johnson and, and James Worthy and, like, my, my favorite time of the Lakers history, right? Um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was still playing. So I was super excited to go. And I, I told my dad, I said, hey, um, how do you get to the Forum? And my dad was a person who was so good at speaking like he knew what he was talking about, whether he did or not. I've, I've got some of that DNA in me. Um, but, but he was just so good at it that it sounded like he knew where I should go. So I'm like, okay, I'm writing it down. I'm trying to memorize it. So it's great. So I'm driving down. I get really close to the forum. I think I make a few turns and all of a sudden I get stopped by a policeman, right? And the policeman walks over. I'm like, I don't think I did anything wrong. I don't know what's going on. I'm, you know, I'm pretty young. I'm 16. I roll down the window. He, he comes in. He, you know, they usually say, do you know how fast you're going? That's kind of the, the question I was ready for. And he said, do you know where you are? No, I'm going to the forum. He's like, you're not at the forum. I was like, well, I can see that. And he's like, you're in Compton in the 80s. Some of you know what that means. Not the safest place to be. And he's like, you don't belong here. And I was like, no, I don't think I do. And he said, you want to go to the forum? I said, yes, I want to go to the forum. And he starts giving me directions. I'm like, oh, come on. I'm not going to, I don't know if I should. And he's like, you know what? He stops halfway through. He's like, you know what? Let me make sure you get all the way there. He's, follow me. So I was escorted by the police to the front. <laughs> when we got there, I was really hoping he'd just drive up to the front so I could just park my car there and be like, man. He did not do that. He's like, he points out of his window and drives off. And I was like, oh, I still got to pay for parking. But, um, but the problem with a false prophet is that they get you almost all the way there, but not all the way. You just sort of miss the mark. I don't know if you remember what we talked about last week when we talked about sin. It's missing the mark. This is the problem with false prophets. So John has laid all this heavy theology. He's laid all this stuff. He's saying, be careful. Like, don't trust everybody. Test them. This and that. And, and so what do we do after this? And I think we should know by now, if you've been following along in the words of John, I don't know if you know what you, or think about what they would be, but it is John writing. So he says this. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. And that makes it easy, doesn't it? And then he says, listen, but anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is, 
Friends, this is as simple and beautiful as it gets. So we turn to love. By the way, he mentions it 32 times in this next section. 43 times overall in the epistles, 32 times in these next few texts. What we understand is that God is the epitome and the definition of love. Therefore, we need to seek to understand love through who God is. This is our hermeneutic, right? When we go to scripture, we go to learn about love by learning about who God is. It's pretty simple. And then he says this, God showed how much he loved us by sending us his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. So what we learn about love and what we learn about God and probably what we learn about what we should be doing is first we learn that it's a sacrificial love, right? Because he sent his son for us. Then he says, this is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. So it's not just sacrificial, but it's undeserved, right? Generous, without condition. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. So it's not just sacrificial and it's not just undeserved. It's perpetual. It's continuing and it's continuing in us. And then he says this, Listen, no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. So it's intimate and it's personal. personal. And even if we don't understand it, we can give the full expression of God through the way that we love one another. So we learn that it's sacrificial. We learn that it's undeserved. We learn that it's perpetual. It comes to us and we give it away. We learn that it's personal, deeply within us, even if we don't understand it necessarily. And then the last few texts, we know how much God loves us. And we have put our trust in his love. God is love. He says it again. And all who live in lo love live in God. And God lives in them. God resides in you when you decide to love. And you show the world the expression of who God is when you decide to love. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because he lives like Jesus, because we live like Jesus here in this world. This is confidence for salvation, assurance of salvation, confidence in judgment. And then this is the text, right? This one we all know. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it's for fear of judgment judgment or punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his love yet. So, so we haven't experienced it. The way we experience it is through one another. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you, living without fear is a very special thing because we live in a world that is divided by fear. If we break it, if we're going to break it down to its most elemental, the most elemental reasoning, the reason the world is as divided as it is, whether you're talking political or whether you're talking religious or whether you're talking race, it's because we fear what we don't know. And we don't only fear it, we vilify it. We hate what we don't know because it's not like us. What I'm hearing John say is that if we have God's love within us, we live without fear. That means we begin to live without division. That means we begin to live without hatred. That means we begin to live in a way that doesn't exclude other people just because they're not like us Amen. or think like us 
or look like us or love like us, all of a sudden those divisions that aren't real anyway fall away. It may not fall away for the other person, but it falls away for us. And that's what we have to be responsible for. The division in the world stems from fear and perfect love casts out fear. So what are you afraid of? And if you're still afraid, which means that you're divisive and that you're angry and that you're, you know, pugilistic and you want to fight, I guess it means that you haven't experienced perfect love. And so I guess it means that we have to love more and love well and love with reckless abandon one another so that this world can experience the full expression of who God is. But it comes from somewhere, and it comes from you. And this is why John, who after, what, 70 years of ministry probably, is like, listen, I guarantee you this is the thing. This is what works. You want fruits from these congregations? They've got to learn how to love one another. And he's teaching them again and again. You've got to find a way to love. You have to find a way to care for one another. You have to find a way to not be afraid. And when you're not afraid, you can do big things. When, when Chattanooga was told by their conference that they had two weeks and if they raised $2 million, they could buy the building. It, half the leadership team was like, oh, well, that's, that's it. The other half was like, nah, man, we can do it. And they called me and they're like, we're going to raise $2 million in two weeks. And I was like, okay. I didn't even know how to respond. Like, I'm just, at that point, I'm a cheerleader. I'm like, yeah, let's make that. That's never happened before. Never that fast. But there were people who stepped in with no fear at all and said, two weeks, we're going to do it and just went for it. And you know the outcome of that is phenomenal. Well, people, you know, people have talked to me over the last week saying a million dollars in six months. I don't know. You can do it. Listen, I don't have a fear of whether or not we can do that. That's not the question. It's not a question of whether or not we can raise the money. God has more than that in preparation for the work that we need to do. But you know, the fear comes in who I have to trust and who we have to trust. I trust that God has that, but now I gotta trust that you believe that too, that you believe God has everything that we need to do all the work that he's called us to do. And how that comes, it comes through you. And it comes through me and the way that we commit to one another. But we can step out in fear and do, step out of fear and do big things when we've experienced the love of God. So even fearlessness stems from this love that God has for us. If it sounds redundant, it's because John is saying it again and again. Because he knows sometimes the only way we learn is through the repetition of the important aspects of what we need to know. And so he says again and again, just love one another and so much will follow that. Just love one another and you'll experience the full expression of who God is in the world. Just love one another and things will get better. You won't be deceived. Just love one another and you'll know who Christ is. So I guess at the end, we just have to love one another. And if it's that simple, You'd think it would be easy, but that's where the rub happens because we have to commit to that love, commit to that simplicity again and again 
and again in every choice and every decision and every hope and every conversation. We're never going to get it perfect. So it's good that we've been perfectly loved so we at least can lean back on what that means and then try again because that's what we're called to do. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, we don't get it right. And we probably have a lot of apologies to make along the way. But I guess what I'm asking for today is um, another portion of recognition of that love so that we can give it out to the world, Lord. So pour into us. Give us a fearlessness that can only come from knowing how well we've been loved. And Lord, grow us in your grace because we need it so much. In your name I pray, Lord. Amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.